Alan finished up his Sunday night series on 1 John. And what I'm planning to do for my next two Sunday night slots is to look at 2 and 3 John. Alan has assured me that he was not intending to do that. So tonight we're going to look at 2 John, and then on September 4th we'll plan to look at 3 John. So you might want to turn there. In the Church Bible it's page 1229. And when you get there, you'll immediately notice that these two letters are short. In fact, they're the two shortest letters in the New Testament. If you blink, you'll miss them and end up in Revelation. But like every part of Scripture, these letters are here for a reason. They're here to teach us about Christian fellowship. You've heard of Christianity Explored and Discipleship Explored. We could give our study of these letters the title Fellowship Explored. Not so long ago we had a couple of Sunday mornings on the topic of fellowship and we looked at it then in quite a general way. But 2nd and 3rd John allow us to see an apostle addressing this topic in two specific situations. Actually I had an interesting situation at Bourneville this morning. Their pastor's on holiday and so I looked at 2nd John with them. And then I found out afterwards that their visiting preacher last week spoke to them on 2 John. So either I need to do a better job of checking ahead or they really needed to hear 2 John. But at least I know Trevor didn't speak on it here this morning. And in fact, the moral of the story is that everybody's into 2 John these days. So we'd better not miss out. So let me read the whole of this short letter. The elder, to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son will be with us in truth and love. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I am not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face, so that our joy may be complete. The children of your chosen sister send their greetings. This is God's word. 
This short little letter teaches us about the foundation and the fuel of true Christian fellowship. It tells us what destroys true Christian fellowship. And then John gives us two keys to preserving true Christian fellowship. So first of all, in verses 1 to 6, John shows us the foundation and the fuel of true Christian fellowship. Look again at those first three verses. The elder to the chosen lady and her children whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son will be with us in truth and love. John calls himself the elder in verse 1. He's not so much referring to his age as to his position in the church. He's a pastor or elder. So he has a degree of responsibility for those that he's writing to. And that leads us to think about those he's writing to. He calls them the chosen lady and her children. The word chosen is literally elect. And most commentators agree that John is referring here not to an individual family, but to a local church fellowship and to the individual members within that fellowship. So the elect lady is the church fellowship, and her children are the members of the fellowship. And I realize at first that might seem like an odd way to talk about a local church. But actually, it's pretty common in the New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul compares the church to a lady, the bride of Christ. We find that comparison in several other places. Then in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter refers to the church in Rome as she. He says, she, elect together with you, sends you her greetings. And in the final verse here in 2 John, we read, the children of your chosen sister send their greetings. So it seems almost certain that rather than acting as a message bearer for two Christian ladies, John is referring to two local church fellowships. And that understanding fits best with what we find in the main part of this letter. John is an elder with leadership responsibility for these two churches. And he begins his letter by indicating the foundation of true Christian fellowship. In verses 1 to 3, saving knowledge of the truth. In these first three verses, John uses the word truth four times. He loves this church in the truth. And in fact, all those who know the truth love her. This love between them is because of the truth. And all the blessings he mentions in verse 3 come in truth. So we have to ask, what exactly does John mean by the truth? If it's the foundation of Christian fellowship, we need to be clear on what it is. If we were to read through John's gospel, we would be left in no doubt what John means by the truth. In chapter 1 of his gospel, he says, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. If we read on, we discover that through the teaching and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we learn the truth about God. We learn the truth about ourselves. God is holy. We are not. And our only hope of reconciliation with God is through Jesus' work on our behalf work that he did on the cross when he died in our place, taking the punishment for our sin. 
That's what John is referring to here when he talks about the truth. Another word we use for it is the gospel, the good news about Jesus. Earlier we read Paul's summary of that good news in 1 Corinthians 15. So the foundation of true Christian fellowship is the gospel. But it's not just knowing about the gospel. John began by mentioning the chosen or elect lady and her children. In verse 2 he says the truth he's talking about lives in us and will be with us forever. So John and the people he's writing to don't just have a common interest in the gospel. The way some people have a common interest in steam trains. Now, John and his readers are united by a saving knowledge of the gospel. Through faith in the gospel, they know they're in a right standing before God. Their lives have been reordered by the gospel. It lives in them. And it's their hope for the future. It will be with them forever. So we can say that the foundation of true Christian fellowship is saving knowledge of the gospel. John and those he's writing to have been changed by the truth. And so they have a special bond that goes way beyond a common interest. I know very well that none of this is new to you. But it's so important for us to be clear on this. To keep coming back to this. Because we forget this so easily. It's easy to behave As if our fellowship is based on something else. Maybe having similar personalities. Or liking the same style of music. Or seeing a certain church ministry as the most important church ministry. Or maybe seeing a certain doctrinal or social issue as the most important thing. Or being in the same life stage or the same economic bracket. But every single one of those things is a pretty brittle connection. It's not strong enough to hold us together. And even when it does hold us together for a time, it means we can only relate to a certain section within the church. People who are like us in some very superficial way. Or people who like the same things as us. So we have to constantly remind ourselves that it's the truth of the gospel which unites us. Not just an interest in the gospel, but the fact that we have been forever changed by it. And when we keep our eyes on this, it helps us keep the other differences in perspective. And it helps us to see that we can't have true fellowship with those who don't share this life-changing experience of the gospel. That's true whether we're thinking about a marriage partner or whether we're thinking about working together with another religious group whether they go under the label of a Christian group or any other religion. There are plenty of groups that are labeled Christian, but they either deny or have no grasp of the truth John is talking about here. And so we can be friends and acquaintances with people like that, but we can't have true fellowship with them, no matter how hard we try. There's no real bond between us. But then on the flip side, when we do have that bond, we can have fellowship despite plenty of very obvious differences between us. Some of you have had the experience of visiting another country. 
and connecting there with a group of believers. It's amazing how we can immediately feel we have a bond with them. That's true even in situations where we don't speak the same language. As you know, we recently had some students visiting us from a church in Slovakia. Now, we had never met them before. They had never met any of us. But when they walked through the door, we had an immediate connection because of this gospel bond between us. So we had a meal together in next door, and we sang together in different languages. And when they passed through on their way back home, it was like meeting long-lost friends again. John says we are united by the truth that lives in us. And that bond creates grace, mercy, and peace among us. It's a very beautiful thing. But the Apostle John is not naive. He knows as well as you and I do that even people who share a saving knowledge of the truth, even those united in the truth, can live with a very obvious lack of grace, mercy, and peace in their relationships. We know all too well that some football supporters clubs have more visible unity than some Christians do. Even though Christians have a deep bond and football supporters don't. John is not naive. So having pointed to the foundation of true Christian fellowship, now he talks about the fuel that energizes our fellowship. He talks about the active ingredient that makes our fellowship live and sing. It's obedience to the truth. In verse 1, John mentioned his love for those he's writing to. In verse 3, he ended his greeting with the word love. And now he develops this in verses 4 to 6. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I'm not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. John is able to report in verse 4 that he has been in contact with some of the members of this church. And he's glad to find them not only believing in the truth, but walking in the truth. In other words, they're living it out. They're obeying it. Yes, John has said in verse 2 that the truth lives in us, but he's equally clear that we have a responsibility to walk in the truth. We have to obey it. And the specific command from God that John mentions is to love one another. That's in verse 5. Today, the word love is mainly thought of as an emotion. We either feel it or we don't. So people can talk about falling in love and falling out of love. Love can come and go because it's an emotion. But that is not at all the way the New Testament speaks about love. Love in the New Testament is an action. We choose to love someone. Emotion has little or nothing to do with it. And in fact, our wedding vows show the same understanding of love. When we marry someone, we promise to love them. We're not promising to always feel love. We're promising to show love, whether we feel it or not. 
The danger in the church is that we take on the same understanding of love as the culture around us. We forget that love is a choice and an action. That's why the New Testament can command us to love. So we're to show love to that brother or sister in the church even when we feel like throttling them. John says obeying the command to love is one specific way we walk in the truth. If the truth lives in us, then we're to show it by loving others. John has pointed to one specific command we must obey, we must love. But now in verse 6, he turns it back around again. How do we love? By obeying God's commands. Notice what he says, and this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. So these are the steps in John's logic. We must obey God. God commands us to love one another. We love one another by obeying all God's commands. So love doesn't just involve patting someone on the shoulder. It involves giving generously. It involves sharing with God's people who are in need. It involves practicing hospitality. It involves not being proud, not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought. It involves hating what is evil and clinging to what is good. Not repaying evil for evil. Honoring one another above ourselves. Rejoicing with those who rejoice. Mourning with those who mourn. Those are a selection of God's commands. Those ones are all given through the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12. But we could turn to many other places in the New Testament And we would find many more commands about relating to others. And taken together, those commands show us what Christian love looks like. It's not a vague, fluffy kind of thing. It's concrete. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience. Restore gently the one caught in a sin. Confess your sins to each other. Those are God's commands. And this is love, John says in verse 6, that we walk in obedience to his commands. So then, what is the fuel that energizes our fellowship? What's the active ingredient that makes it live and sing? It's obedience to the truth. Now, I don't know which aspect of this challenge you most need to hear today. Maybe you need to hear the challenge about the foundation of our fellowship. Maybe you need to be reminded that there is no true fellowship without unity in the gospel. Or, maybe for you, the key thing to remember is what fuels true fellowship. The fact that living fellowship is a non-starter unless we all pursue obedience to the truth. Specifically, the command to love. The command which is fulfilled by walking in obedience to all of God's commands. Some of us have a tendency to be valiant for the truth. But we're not so hot on living out the nitty gritty of God's commands to bear with others and encourage others. Others of us love to serve and to give. But maybe we're a bit weak on the foundation of our fellowship. 
Each of us needs to take both of these aspects seriously. John Stott has said that our love grows soft if it is not strengthened by truth. And our truth grows hard if it is not softened by love. Our love grows soft if it is not strengthened by truth. And our truth grows hard if it is not softened by love. John isn't finished. Having focused on the positive, now he turns to deal with the other side of the coin. Now that we're clear on the foundation and the fuel of true Christian fellowship, secondly, John points to what destroys true Christian fellowship. And he answers this question in verses 7 to 9. What he mentions here are not the only things that destroy fellowship. For example, he could have focused on lovelessness, selfishness, impurity in the church. But he's addressing a specific church fellowship. And he's addressing their specific situation. It seems what these Christians most need to be warned about is the danger of those who either deny or move beyond the truth. In verses 7 to 8, John mentions those who are denying the truth. Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. The mention here of people going out into the world reminds us of Jesus sending his disciples out to preach the gospel. But here, it's deceivers who are going out into the world. John is reminding us that the devil sends out his workers too. He sends out false teachers to spread lies and deception. And their deception centers on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Verse 7 says, They do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. What exactly does that mean? Well, there are two things it could mean. These false teachers may have been speaking about Christ's birth. They may have been denying Jesus' deity. He was a good man, but he wasn't God the Son come to earth in human flesh. That's one possibility. Or the false teachers may have been speaking about Christ's return. Yes, he came to earth, he lived and died, but there is no future hope. There's no future day when he will be seen coming in the flesh, returning to earth physically to rule the new heaven and earth. Those are the two possibilities. Denial of the truth about Jesus' first coming or his second coming. The tense of the verb allows us to read the text either way. So what deception did John have in mind? We can't be sure. It's even possible he had both of those in mind. But the significant point for us tonight is that this deception, whatever precise form it took, involved denying the truth about Jesus Christ. And all false teaching at its heart is a denial of some aspect of the good news about Jesus. The gospel is life-changing truth. It's the only hope for our salvation. So it shouldn't surprise us when the devil works to undermine the truth of the gospel. It shouldn't surprise us that he sends out lots of antichrists. The Bible tells us to expect a final Antichrist, 
But it also tells us there will be many antichrists throughout history. Antichrist is a category of person, those who oppose the truth about Christ. That's what John is referring to in verse 7. Verse 8 is a reference back to the first half of the letter. If we get sucked in by these deniers of the truth, it will destroy the fellowship and the grace, mercy, and peace that we have experienced. These believers' fellowship is based on the truth about Jesus. They mustn't let false teaching deprive them of the truth. If they do, they're going to be deprived of true fellowship as well. When a church loses the truth of the gospel, their fellowship soon disintegrates as well. Then in verse 9, John mentions a second danger which may be even more relevant for us. Because I think we're all probably pretty good at being wary of those who are outright deniers of the truth. But what about those who are moving beyond the truth? Look at verse 9. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. John seems to have in mind those who don't give an outright denial of the gospel. Instead, they're just subtly leaving the gospel behind. They present themselves as being progressive. Now, it's true, we are to be creative and fresh in the way we present the truth. We're to be aware of the particular time and culture that we live in. So John is not calling for traditionalism here. The 17th century was a wonderful time, no doubt. But we don't live in the 17th century. We don't have to pretend that we do. So when it comes to the presentation of our message, there's some room for being progressive. But when it comes to the content of our message, there is no room at all for being progressive. John says we are to continue in the teaching of Christ. The Apostle Paul said the same thing to Timothy. What you have heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. So we need great discernment to see when someone is modernizing the presentation of the truth and when they're actually messing around with the truth itself. And the reason we need discernment is because those who teach this stuff will almost never claim to be denying the gospel. They will claim to be moving us forward to a newer, better, more relevant message. And the gospel just fades into the background. It's not being denied. It's just not being given central place anymore. Something else, some other message moves into the foreground. And before you know it, they are miles away from the truth of the gospel. Without ever denying it outright, they've run so far ahead of it that they've ended up on some other path entirely. Maybe, for example, the path of universalism. Claiming that in the end, everyone will be saved, whether they accept Christ or not. And I realize when I mention the word universalism, your eyes might glaze over. 
Surely that's something that's only taught in other church circles. But in fact, only months ago, a prominent evangelical leader published a book arguing that everyone will be saved. He didn't teach that at the beginning of his ministry. He didn't build his reputation on that teaching. But now he has run ahead of the truth. It's not something that only happens out there in other kinds of churches. The irony is, none of those new messages are actually new at all. They're always just an older error presented as a new discovery. When we run ahead of the teaching of Christ, we end up back in darkness. Without the Son or the Father, John says. As Christians, at the end of the day, we are all followers. Some might be more gifted in teaching than others, but every single Christian is a follower. The most gifted theologian or preacher has no right to run ahead with his ideas. He is to continue in the teaching of Christ, just like every other Christian. We're all to follow the truth, not get ahead of the truth. So it's not only denying the truth that breaks true Christian fellowship, we must also watch out for those who are moving beyond the truth. So be very discerning about what you hear on the God channel or what you read in Woman Alive or any other Christian media. John has pointed to the problem. But what help does he give these believers? What help does he give us today? Well, in verses 10 to 13, he sets out thirdly two keys to preserving true Christian fellowship. First of all, John tells us to avoid fellowship in evil. Verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. Most of us are probably familiar with the word koinonia. It's usually translated as fellowship. We're used to hearing about the good kind of koinonia in the New Testament. But here, John mentions another kind of fellowship. The word that's translated shares in verse 11 is koinoneo. That's the verbal form of koinonia. John says the one who welcomes a false teacher fellowships in his wicked work. False teaching is a wicked work because it deceives people. It deprives them of the life-saving truth about Jesus. And so John's command in verse 10 is, don't take a false teacher into your house or welcome him. We have to stop and ask, what exactly does John mean? Is it wrong to invite a Jehovah's Witness into your living room? Is it wrong to offer them a cup of tea while you try to show them the truth about Jesus? Well, remember the context this letter is written to. It's written to a local church. And for the first few hundred years of the church, church buildings as we know them didn't exist. Local churches met in homes. So when John says, don't take a false teacher into your house, he's saying, don't give them a welcome in your church. Don't give them a platform to air their false teaching in the church. 
So John is talking about giving official acceptance to false teachers in the life and the fellowship of the church. He's not thinking of our non-Christian friends or family members. He's not thinking of the Jehovah's Witness who knocks on our door. So if you have the patience for it, by all means, give them a cup of tea and point them to the truth about Jesus. Have your Muslim neighbor around too. These verses are not speaking about how we relate to those outside the church. This is about how we relate to those who want to be in the church. But they have parted company with the truth about Jesus. We are not to fellowship in their evil work by giving them acceptance in our church fellowship. Now certainly we want even false teachers to come and to hear God's word. We want them to be present in the church. And if they repent, we're commanded to restore them gently. But until they repent, we are only fellowshipping in their evil work if we treat them as a brother or sister in Christ. True Christian fellowship is incompatible with fellowship in evil. John finishes his letter on a positive note. He shows us that it's not enough to simply avoid fellowship in evil. We must also nurture genuine Christian relationships. Look at verse 12. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your chosen sister send their greetings. It seems John has written this letter because the situation needed urgent attention from him. Maybe he knew one of these deceivers had arrived on the doorstep of the church. But John knows too that in the longer term, this church needs more from him than just letters and commands. The best hope for these Christians to avoid fellowship in evil is for them to nurture genuine Christian relationships. Christians who are isolated are vulnerable to deception. They're vulnerable to running ahead of the truth. All of us need the correction and the refining that comes from knowing and being known by other Christians. So John is going to visit them. Not only to talk to them, but also to hear from them. He's going to help them apply the truth he's set out in this letter. And in our context, this is why home groups are so important. Yes, the ministry from the pulpit is central to the life of the church. There must be times when together we listen to God's word. We don't contribute anything to the discussion. We just hear from God. Hopefully with not too many of the preacher's own ideas mixed in. But then, as John shows us here, there must also be times when we do discuss together. When we help each other apply the truth that we've heard. When we develop genuine relationships with our brothers and sisters. We need both to hear from God and also to help each other apply and obey what we hear. That's why the book of Hebrews says, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together. 
We need to nurture genuine Christian relationships. This is key to preserving true Christian fellowship. So if you're not in a home group, I encourage you to get in one. I'd be happy to help you with that. And if you are in a home group, I encourage you to stick with it. Enter into it fully. You need it. We all do. John has reminded us that the truth about Jesus is vital for Christian fellowship. It's the foundation. And so together we're going to close this part of our service by affirming the truth about Jesus. We're going to sing together, Name of All Majesty.